she's an honors professor at the University of Oklahoma, and her specialty is alcoholism from the late 19th uh, century to current. And uh, just discussing the subject with her, uh, I was shocked about some things that uh, we knew about alcoholism uh, prior to 1935. And so uh, I think you're going to be highly entertained uh, by uh, Sarah's talk. Take the stats right. <laughs> there are only two, not 12. Um, thank you, Lanny. Too loud. It's okay? All right. Uh, I'm delighted to be here today with you all. Um, and to take you on a sort of historical slideshow that covers doctors' efforts to treat alcoholics during the forgotten years, um, what I've called 1800. Um, Benjamin Rush actually articulates the disease con 1794, um, but I've, I've said 1800 to 1900. Um, and here you see Benjamin Rush, who has been labeled um, by many uh, the founder um, of not only of American psychiatry. There we go. Okay, thanks. Now, um, the period 1800 to 1935 is actually one of the most fascinating periods in the history of medicine, period. Um, it, it's a time that witnessed uh, the rise of the American medical profession generally, as well as several other revolutionizing developments in, in the field, the discovery and the use of antiseptic and aseptic surgical techniques, the discovery of anesthesia, the creation of uh, the modern medical school curriculum, the rise of the modern hospital, and at the end of our period, the development of antibiotics. It's also a period of American history generally um, that takes us a long way from the founding of the new public uh, through the rise of America's most enduring social, political, and spiritual reform drive, the temperance movement, few people realize that the temperance movement was true, through Western expansion, and the transformation of the East Coast and the Upper Midwest through urbanization, immigration, and industrialization. So you get the impression there is a lot going on um, in this 135-year period. And as we'll see today, all of these developments really play into um, our story of physicians' involvement with alcoholics or individuals who were then labeled habitual drunkards, inebriates, dipsomaniacs, and the intemperate. I'm in the midst of writing a book, as Lanny alluded to, um, a book on the history of physicians' attempts to medicalize habitual drunkenness between 1870 and 1920. So much of the material that I'm going to present to you today is actually from my research for this book. Um, the other material comes from a course that I've taught on the history of alcohol and drug use in the United States from 1700 to the present. Um, but I also have a debt to two particular. Uh, one, Bill L. White. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Slaying the Dragon, but it's a wonderful treatment of treatment. Um, and the other person I owe a great deal to is Mark Linder, whose book, Drinking in America, um, is, is really a, a masterful and accessible study of drinking habits of, the, of Americans uh, from, again, from about 1600 to the present. So with no further ado, um, let me move on or move back to Benjamin Rush, who was born in 1746. Now, Rush had a pretty impressive medical education, studying at Princeton, London, and Paris. He was a faculty member of the University of Pennsylvania, which was the nation's first medical school, and he was also a member of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, one of a couple of physicians, I think, uh, nation's charter, and he served as um, the physician general to the Continental Army. He's often regarded, as I mentioned before, as the father of American psychiatry, but he was also the first 
to refer to habitual drunkenness as a disease. In fact, he called it an odious disease. In his um, essay, uh, you can tell I'm not an historian of technology. Oh, but that will take us backwards. See, I want to go forwards. Okay, thanks. There's Rush. And there, wonderful. This is his inquiry into the effects of ardent spirits upon the human body and mind. Um, now, uh, no doubt Rush had many motivations for addressing the drinking habits of his fellow Americans. Um, but it's easy to pinpoint at least three, uh, one personal, one political, one professional. First, his father's alcoholism had led to his parents' divorce, and his mother had remarried but married a distiller who abused her. Um, second, as a signer of our nation's charter, uh, Rush uh, was very much concerned about the health of the Republic, and he was very disturbed by the grog rations that were handed out to the Continental Army. Remember, he was physician general to the Army. Um, and he was also uh, concerned about the, uh, what was customary at the time, that is, paying farmers or farmhands laborers with alcohol. Uh, Rush was really someone who believed that uh, the new Republic, um, the new democracy demanded uh, that we have a sober citizenry. Then third, in his professional capacity as an alienist, um, what we would call a psychiatrist today, Rush was familiar with the travails of treating inebriates in both the insane asylum and the jail. Um, most hospitals at the time refused to treat um, habitual drunkards, and Rush was the first facilities for alcoholics and these houses. Um, and it's worth noting that Rush believed that these sober houses which he discussed not in this essay but in another, um, should rely heavily on spirituality and Christian fellowship to reform. Now, there's several interesting aspects of Russia's approach. First, he perceived alcoholism to be a disease, and we can tell this from his moral and physical thermo. Maybe I can take this with me. Can I do that? Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, great. Thanks a lot. Um, but you see, um, in temperance, um, all of, there's punch at the top, toddy and egg rum, grog, flip and shrub, bitters, drams of gin, um, and you know, punch is the, the most benign of, of uh, drinks, and you see uh, that we go in vices from idleness and gaming associated with punch all the way down to burglary and murder um, that are associated with rum. Um, so, uh, and diseases start out as general sickness, but they end up in madness and despair. Anyway, you, you get the idea. Uh, Rush really had uh, an idea that this was a, a progressive disease. Rush also distinguished, interestingly, between distilled beverages and fermented beverages. Um, the distilled beverages were bad. There was nothing useful at all about them, while fermented beverages, such as wine and beer, um, were nutritious in his eyes and the eyes of others. Um, in fact, many of the um, uh, advocates of the day also um, adhered to this. Beer, cider, uh, and wine were just fine. What they objected to was whiskey and rum, the distilled beverages. It wasn't actually until 1836 that the temperance movement voted in an, you know, voted in an official teetotaling policy. By then, whiskey placed beer and cider as Americans' beverage of choice. Now, a couple of other interesting aspects of this. Rush also maintained a very liberal attitude toward the use of opium, which of course was one of the 18th and 19th centuries uh, physicians' therapeutic mainstays. Um, indeed, he recommended opium of alcoholism. Rush also demonstrated a sophisticated understanding 
uh, of inebriety's etiology and uh, the many measures that might be used for its relief. And he pointed to a host of uh, social and familial factors that might lead men and women to drink. And these included, for different groups, for laborers, um, uh, not being fed decent, nutritious meals. Uh, for those living in countries with intermittent fevers, malaria, say, Rush pointed to the use of alcohol as an antipyritic. For professional men, Rush noted uh, that it, uh, the exhaustion um, that was the, the, the exhaustion that resulted from people's constant use of their brains could often lead to inebriety. For women, Rush pointed to the frequency of hating postpartum complications. And for all individuals, Rush focused on the harmful consequences of disappointment, of losing loved ones, um, or one's livelihood, or perhaps both. And the, the uh, Rush viewed tobacco as a, what we would call today a gateway drug to alcohol use. Um, quite interesting, an idea that was picked up later, um, actually, in the 19th century. Now, with regard to treatment, Rush also offered a sort of multidimensional, if at times quaint, uh, array of therapeutic interventions. Now, some of these he had observed and some, that he, some he could actually uh, control himself. Um, but first and foremost, uh, he listed religious conversion and the devout practice of Christianity as helpful uh, for the inebriate's recovery. Second, he listed the occurrence of life events that inspire a sudden, intense feeling of guilt or shame. And again, this was anecdotal evidence. He provided in his essay um, lots of anecdotes about people who suddenly felt this intense guilt or shame and then um, recovered as a result. Third, the association of negative experiences with drinking. Um, this included a, a sort of early aversive therapy in which Rush mixed tartar emetic um, with uh, whatever drink the alcoholic favored um, and thus you know, created an association of nausea with drinking. Fourth, he recommended the adoption of a vegetarian diet. Fifth, signing a pledge and formally committing to a course of temperance. Sixing the sudden death of a fellow drinker. Again, anecdotes he supplied. And seventh, blister. Um, now, while we may have some doubt about the e efficacy of, say, ankle blistering, uh, Rush's list of therapeutic interventions reveals that he was aware, I think, of the psychological and the spiritual dimensions of treatment as well as its physiological aspects. And I should also note here that Rush's concerns about drinking were really quite far-sighted. He was writing at the beginning of a 40-year period in American history um, that was really characterized by unprecedented levels of alcohol consumption. Between 1790 and 1830, annual per capita consumption of absolute alcohol, 5.8 gallons to 7.1 gallons. Today it's around 2 gallons. So people drank an awful lot. As I noted, this also marked a shift in the American drinking preferences from beer, cider, and wine, the fermented beverages, to whiskey or distilled alcohol. And as many have suggested, immigration, urbanization, industrialization, and the Western expansion all contributed between 1790 and 1830 to the creation of a class of working men and women who organized their labor and their social lives around alcohol. This, we've had the rise of the saloon period. Americans in record numbers, in short, were consuming alcohol in record amounts. And it didn't go unnoticed, and we see organization. The Massachusetts Society for the Suppression of Prince, founded in 1813, and then by, by 1826, um, there's a national temperance organization in place, the American Temperance Society. Now, 
Rush had a number of successors, physicians, physiologists, and chemists who were interested in dissuading the public from its use of ardent spirits. Um, physician Daniel Drake of the Eclectic Medical College in Cincinnati uh, was one of them, and Drake wrote a discourse on intemperance in 1828. Another, William Sweetser, MD of the University of Vermont, his was a dissertation on intemperance, 1829. Now these works, they were highly derivative of Rush. For example, their understanding of alcoholism's etiology and uh, the remedies for, for it followed Rush really to a T. It's almost a copied Rush's original essay. Similarly, Drake and Sweetser distinguished between distilled alcohol and the mo more benign wine and beer. The teach physician's writing, however, was becoming more critical of alcohol generally. And Sweetser, whose dissertation won the Massachusetts Medical Society's 1829 Temperance Essay Prize, devoted several pages to the potential pernicious effects of immoderate wine consumption. So he was, you know, attacking a fermented beverage. This was really quite something. Um, the general appearance of the body of the excessive wine drinker, said Sweetser, is commonly indicative of a plethoric condition. The face is ruddy and rotund, the belly increased in size, and an increased quantity of fat is deposited in the cellular tissue. This condition is often connected with a weakness of body and a torpor. Sweetser's profile of the excessive wine drinker really was uh, one of the first of um, a series of uh, physical and physiological profiles of drinkers that became a staple. And I have a couple of examples to show you. I'm not fitting the screen, but you can see wine at 21. And, uh, accompanying that is um, uh, the, the facial um, uh, moderate drinking um, to uh, regular drinking and intemperance. Um, I have a couple of more here. Again, you have the healthful stomach, uh, the stomach with moderate drinking, the drunkards becomes ulcerous after a long debauch, focusing in on the uh, dying cells and you know this sort of diagram was a real staple of the temperance uh, movement now here's the liver uh, of it and, and all of the, the the horrible things that might happen to um, the habitual drunkard's liver as time went on and again here um, in keeping with the tenor of the growing temperance movement both Drake and Drake and Sweetser also highlighted the damage done not only to bodies but to um, the relatives of the intent drinker and the social costs in terms of orphans, widows, crime, wage earners. Like Rush, these men were social reform. Now, one of Drake's and Sweetser's contemporaries, a physician who actually vies with Benjamin Rush for the title of the father of American psychiatry, um, is uh, Samuel Woodward. And he was the first superintendent of the Massachusetts Hospital um, for the Insane at Worcester, Mass. And um, writing, he, he wrote a, 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 a series of essays on asylums for inebriates in 1836. Here you see um, the title page. This was actually published in pamphlet form, but these essays originally appeared in newspapers in both Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, Woodward departed from Drake and Sweetser in several important respects. First, he argued that only total abstinence would cure the alcoholic. Both distilled and fermented beverages were equally condemned in Woodward's mind. Second, for Woodward, intemperance represented not one but diseases ranging from alcoholic gout. Um, third, Woodward focused on heredity as well as personal and social factors in the etiology of inebriety. And finally, buoyed by his experience with the use of moral therapy in curing the insane at Worcester, Woodward advocated a similar 
treatment that stressed diet, stressed exercise, rest, amusement, and the uplifting influencation to affect the alcoholic's cure. Indeed, for Woodward, society could offer no better solution than these asylums. And here's Woodward describing uh, the situation in an asylum, in an adult. There, let every comfort be offered him, fire to warm his benumbed limbs, clothes to cover his naked body, savory food to sustain and equalize his sinking, debilitated stomach. They really focused on that, because you see. Um, cordials to calm the agitation of his nervous system, and above all, kindness, gentleness, benevolence, beaming from the senses. Let him have a neat inking room. Let him have regular meals and wholesome read, paper to write, Bring him as soon as possible within the compass of this done, commence the additional moral treatment of inculcating correct principles and an adherence to certain rules. Let this be done in daily familiarization and occasional lectures, daily devotional exercises, and attendance on the religious worship of the Sabbath will have a favorable this must all This must be the all-pervading principle of the establishment total abstinence from all alcoholic or vegan. Now, it would actually take um, just over three decades for Woodward's recommendations to be adopted and put and really operationalized. In the interim, we have another group, um, this the Washingtonian movement, the Washingtonian societies. And some of you may have heard of, of these groups. Um, the Washingtonian movement um, of the early 1840s was a mutual aid-based grassroots temperance fellowship movement that started in Baltimore and swept through the nation, taking uh, an, in an estimated 600,000 individuals uh, within a couple of years, really quite uh, founders um, of the, the six members who were uh, members of the Washingtonians, founding members of the Washingtonians. Um, the Washingtonian society's leaders were drawn from the artisan and the working classes, and this was a real contrast from the American Temperance Society and the Massachusetts Society for the Suppression of Temperance, um, those had been um, society's elites um, and very church-tied. Um, uh, well, the Washingtonian groups, Washingtonian groups, they, they, they sprung up all over the countryside, and their meetings really represented a blend of high drama, you know, killer revival. Um, usually there was an emotionally charged confession and story of reformation, followed by individuals brief in the signing of pledges. And here you see a couple of depictions of this. Um, here's a Washingtonian meeting with a speaker. He doesn't have enough hair to be John Goff, the famous uh, Washington speaker. Um, but it clearly uh, bedazzling um, and solutions in the, the crowd that had gathered. And there you see people signing the pledge again. Here's another uh, depiction of signing the pledge. Now, one of the most famous um, of temperance speakers, the charismatic John Goff I just alluded to, was a native of, Br of Britain. He came to the United States, and he amassed a small fortune um, on the Washingtonian temperance circuit. Uh, and here's a picture of Goff. Um, not surprising, that, uh, particularly monetarily, uh, when you consider that Washingtonian meetings often drew 12,000 or more in huge meetings. Um, the Washingtonian uh, dogma, there were really sort of several uh, essential elements of the Washingtonian program. One was public confession, another public pledge taking, a third visits uh, from older members, a fourth economic and material assistance given to one another, uh, fifth continued experience sharing both at public meetings and uh, when assisting fellow members individually, sixth acts of service, 
toward other alcoholics, and then sober inics um, by lakesides and so forth. Um, one year after its founding, the Washingtonian Society of Martha Washington arm of the organization. You can sort of guess what's going on here. This organization was uh, uh, for women and children. And in addition to providing support um, for uh, women alcoholics, this group aid to reforming inebriates and their dependents. Now, unfortunately, the movement fell um, as quickly as it rose. By 1845, the movement was in a tail. Several factors have been cited for its decline. Um, really a fascinating movement. Um, but the most likely um, uh, suspects or, or reasons for its decline are probably its lack of a real centralization. Um, it was very much a grassroots deal, um, lacking any sort of coordination um, at a state or national level. Also, the Washingtonians failed to create a long-term program for maintaining sobriety, even if they offered um, uh, their pledges a variety of, of supports. Another factor was probably the political rifts that existed between the Washingtonians and uh, religion-based uh, temperance groups. Um, and finally, there was the damaged credibility of uh, some of its more prominent members like John Goff, um, who relapsed. Um, and this, of course, was, was broadcast as loud and clear as, as can be. Now, there were really few physicians involved in the Washingtonian movement, but I mention it for several reasons. The first widespread mutual aid society, organized by and for alcoholics in America. As such, it's often said to be uh, an important predecessor of AA. Second, one of the legacies of the Washingtonian movement was the creation of Washingtonian homes in major cities such as Boston. These homes relied on moral and spiritual in addition to administering to the physical and mental disabilities of alcoholics. And the Boston Washingtonian home, established in 1857, was eventually run by physicians, and it received financial support from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts until... And here you have a, a picture of the uh, Washingtonian home in Boston. This is from the beginning of the, the 20th century. It moved around Boston, but this is the Washingtonian hospital at its most vigorous. Um, Finally, another legacy of the Washingtonian movement um, were the fraternal temperance societies and reform clubs that sprung up in the late 1840s after the Washingtonian fervor had died. And the 1850s, 60s, and um, though variably successful, included physicians among their founders. Take, for example, the case of the Reynolds Red Ribbon Reform Club. Um, can't say that three times real fast. Um, a main physician, Henry Reynolds, had graduated with honors from Harvard in 1864, served in the Civil War, and established a practice in Bangor. But it was a practice that deteriorated with the progression of Reynolds' alcoholism. In 1873, Reynolds, to use a contemporary, he signed a temperance pledge at a large meeting of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and he began to seek out other reformed alcoholics in an effort to stay sober himself as well as help his, his fellow Finally, he ran an advertisement in a local paper for a meeting, and 11 people showed up in Bangor. Well, Reynolds has a compelling story, and he had a Harvard medical degree. And he enjoyed great success um, using both of these uh, to stir others into action. Within two years, there were 4,000 club members in towns all over Maine. It's just extraordinary. Um, he began to travel from state to state, organizing similar groups, and the Red Ribbon Club was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1875. Within a year, there were 70, 70 more Red Ribbon Clubs in Massachusetts, each club having over 1,000 members. Membership in these clubs was open to everyone uh, as long as they were 
over 18, and they would take the pledge. And I have here um, a sort of picture of the, the sort of pledge that people would take. This is not from the Red Ribbon Club. This is from the Blue Ribbon Club, started by uh, Francis Murphy. But it gives you a sense, God helping me, of uh, the, the sort of gospel temperance movement, uh, this Francis Murphy's uh, pledge card, the Blue Ribbon Club pe pledge. Now, the Reynold regarded intemperance as a disease. The Red Ribbon Club meetings were, like the Murphy Club meetings, very religious in their nature, and they centered around um, sharing the struggle to say, stay sober with God's help uh, and um, uh, promoting the benefits uh, to members, the benefits that had been gained through sobriety. Meetings were held weekly and often in connection with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, the red ribbon name derived from the practice of wearing a red ribbon, um, a badge of both membership and a commitment to, to sobriety. Now, the reform clubs, they bring us to the 1870s and the inebriate asylum movement, the most active period of participation in treating alcoholics during our forgotten period, um, really came between 1870 and 1920, when they joined forces with clergy members, social workers, and reformers of all stripes to recast habitual drunkenness um, and, uh, as a disease, the disease of inebriety or dipsomania, and to create new institutions, both public and private, for the medical management of these diseases dipsomania and inebriety. Gathering in New York City to form a new professional organization called the American Association for the Cure of Inebriates, uh, AA, what I'll refer to as AACI, these reformers declared to the world, and this is 1870, first, intemperance is a disease. Second, it is curable in the same sense that other diseases are. Third, its primary cause is a constitutional susceptibility to the alcoholic impression. Fourth, the constitutional tendency may be inherited or acquired. Fifth, alcohol has its true place in the arts and sciences. It is a valuable remedy and, like other remedies, may be abused. Sixth, all members hitherto employed having, oh, sorry, all methods hitherto employed having proved insufficient for the care of inebriates, the establishment of asylums for such a purpose is the great demand of the age. Seventh, Every large city should have its local or temporary home for inebriates, and every state one or more asylums for the treatment in eight. The law should recognize intemperate disease and provide other means for its management than fines, station houses, and jails. Now, the AACI formed its own journal, the Quarterly Journal of Inebriety, and it was edited by the superintendent of the Walnut Hill Lodge. Here you see the Walnut Hill Lodge in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, the um, editor of the Quarterly Journal of Inebriety and the superintendent of Hill, T.D. Crothers, Thomas Davison Crothers. Now, over the next 48 years, Crothers became the leading spokesperson for the medicalization cause as he put forth the, the association's principles in the Quarterly Journal of Inebriety, the Medical Legal Journal, and um, other popular social reform and medical periodicals. Now, by way of background, I just want to tell you what was going on um, and why this, this made sense at this particular time. Promoting a disease understanding of habitual drunkenness in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era in America uh, consumed a lot of people, um, hundreds if not thousands of social reformers, many of them physicians. The swift expansion of the cities, the rise of big industry, the cycles of boom and bust that characterized the new economy, the immigration of millions of newcomers from alcohol drinking cultures, um, all of these uh, developments created new and amplified old social problems. 
and increasingly, in what has been called the, the search for order by historian Robert Beebe, um, government and industrial leaders turn scientists for help in the efficient management of the workplace to create healthy water supplies, to ensure the public's well-being. Scientific, especially engineering and medical experts, took more powerful positions advising on affairs of Physicians who formed the AACI, I think, saw an opportunity to capitalize on their scientific backgrounds as well as serve the public good. Um, they wished to create a new specialty of what we would call addiction medicine. Um, and the superintendents of hospitals and prison wardens alike really loathed dealing with inebriates. Uh, general hospitals, if private, often refused to treat the habitual drunkard, or if public and required to treat all classes of patients, found the alcoholic rounder or repeater, as um, he or she was called, um, a source of, quote, ever-recurring trouble. I'll give you a, a sense of this. Um, here's a, a publication the New York City United Charities um, uh, Charities Aid Association on the alcoholic repeater it's from 1910. Oh, we can't see the top. This is, um, this is the habitual drunkard. This appeared in the survey, a social work uh, journal, um, and talked about just um, how the, uh, the courts were failing the habitual drunkard. And then we have, oh, if we can see the, <laughs> are a big nuisance. The, uh, uh, Dr. Volding, his opinion of the inebriates. Um, and Volding was in Iowa, uh, the superintendent of the Cherokee State Hospital in Iowa. So you get the sense. People did not want to deal with the inebriates. The AACI said, look, we need a new kind of institution. Um, AACI physicians, much as uh, Samuel Woodward had, had uh, reasoned over three decades earlier, uh, they, they reasoned that a new approach was necessary, and they lobbied to change laws regarding the treatment of public drunkards and to promote a disease that stressed both heredity and the social circumstances of the inebriates. Now, the construction of specific institutions for drunkards comprised a key element of the campaign. Reformers established more than 100 private and public institutions and dipsomaniacs during this period. Twenty, Most were closed with the passage of prohibition. But at least a dozen states in the District of Columbia to establish public inebriate hospitals. Now, only California, um, Iowa, um, where you saw big, um, here's the Iowa uh, State Hospital for Inebriates at Knoxville, Iowa, Massachusetts, um, and I apologize for the, the poor state hospital, the Massachusetts Hospital for Dipsomaniacs and Inebriates, and New York. Um, architecture. Um, these, these states in Minnesota were successful in creating their own institutions, but by far the longest-lived state system for inebriates um, belonged to Massachusetts and Iowa. Indeed, in 1910, uh, the survey, a uh, famous social work periodical, uh, referred to both Massachusetts Hospital for Dipsomaniacs and Inebriates and Iowa's State Hospital for Inebriates and for other states. And here you see the first farm hospital at uh, Massachusetts, at Fox. Same, uh, the Iowa institution was also profiled in this article. Now, I want to take a look at what the situation was like in Massachusetts. Um, Foxborough, where the hospital was located, was easily accessible by rail and car from Boston, um, whose metropolitan area generally supplied the greatest number of patients, 11th Annual Report. This, was, uh, this hospital was established in 1893 after two decades of legislative lobbying. And it promised to offer the state's less middle-class ranks the sort of care that had, up until 1890, really been the province only of the wealthy. Um, it's worth noting, in some sense, this was also um, simply another of the state's response um, to uh, the Irish population. Alcoholics, um, and, and this, was, this was apparent in the, the rhetoric of, of reformers, um, quite, quite 
apparent. Um, alcoholics came to the hospital by court commitment or voluntary admission. Uh, once there, patients were given a thorough physical exam, and I have here uh, just a, a, basically a, a, a sample uh, where demographic data was collected, um, the nature of the, uh, uh, the length of time, the nature of employment, uh, the etiological factors, previous treatment, and so forth were all mapped. Um, here you have the, the physical report, the history of the present illness, um, all of this uh, was taken on each patient. They did a really in-depth profile of, of, each, of each patient who came into the hospital. After this physical exam, um, patients had a regimen of wholesome food and rest for about a week. Um, subsequent evaluations were made, and as the inebriates' physical and mental proved, they were encouraged to participate in a variety of calisthenics in the facility's new gym. Um, here you see a picture of the gym, with, uh, complete with medicine balls. Um, and after the, uh, the calisthenics, they were uh, then supposed to participate in hydrotherapy. Here are the showers at the gym and uh, the Baruch system, one of the uh, oh, hydrotherapy, also uh, uh, advertised in, in all of the annual reports as up-to-date. Um, meticulous measurements were kept of the patient's change in physique, measurements of weight, posture, and work capacity. Here on the left, you have their occupations, age, weights, um, when they ha had arrived after uh, strength, all of these things were, were measured. Um, and finally, these are actually profiles. If you turn your, the, this was to demonstrate that these exercises, these calisthenics, uh, actually were paying off uh, and the regimen effective. Um, so you had the change after changes in posture. Um, when sufficiently well, Patients were given work assignments around the hospital. An effort was made to place patients in work that resembled their previous occupation. Um, but in the later years, the hospital established agricultural training programs in conjunction, actually, with the Massachusetts Departments of Forestry, the Bureau of Fish and Game, the State Agricultural College, Harvard, and MIT Departments of Geology. Um, they cooperated with all of these uh, institutions in really shaping a, 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 a program for, for rehabilitating, uh, vocational rehabilitation of, of the inebriates. The hospital superintendents um, placed an emphasis on teach force. Um, local citizens helped organize a hospital orchestra. They gave lectures, slide presentations, they did, and, and several um, professors from the local Boston universities also participated. Catholic, Protestant church services were held each Sunday, and under the direction of um, very famous settlement house reformer Robert Archie Woods, Foxborough also developed uh, an elaborate outpatient program um, that enlisted the aid of churches and reform clubs across the state. This slide depicts one of uh, Woods's pamphlets, Drunkenness, how the local community can be brought to do its part, which is what um, they certainly were, were trying to affect in Mass. Upon discharge, pay intended, and make regular visits to the mobile outpatient offices that were usually a outpatient physicians' homes, um, both before and after discharge, to educate families um, about their loved ones' conditions, uh, and how best to help them uh, stay abstinent and working. Every attempt was made to connect discharged alcoholics with local reform clubs, such as the Red Ribbon Clubs, um, and churches uh, for the communities of support that these offered. Annual reports of Foxborough devoted particular attention to the special relationship that the superintendent and uh, um, especially, um, uh, an especially morally uplifting relationship that was said to be the basis for it, end quote. 
and encouraging him to adopt a new definition of manhood, one that centered around sobriety, responsibility, and fiscal independence. Um, uh, interestingly, in the course of the hospital's history, what constituted um, was actually redefined, redefined from abstinence to maturancy. Um, even those who continued to drink but were able to fulfill their social roles as husband, father, and breadwinner um, were considered success stories. Uh, female inebriates, as they were called, uh, were sent to the Westboro State Hospital for the Insane or to the New England Home and Home for Intemperate Women, eventually became the Massachusetts Home and Hospital for Women and cooperated quite um, uh, extensively with, with uh, Westboro. Now, as I noted, Massachusetts was far from alone in the inebriate reform business. And as you can see here, the state of Iowa also constructed an impressive facility. Here's the Knoxville State Hospital, uh, just of the different buildings there. The basic framework for treatment at Knoxville uh, resembled uh, that at Foxborough. In fact, they were uh, they term uh, cooperation of techniques that they were, were using. But of course, uh, in a more uh, rural, less affluent state, it was also more difficult to establish an outpatient department. Um, there were fewer ties to educational institutions, if any, uh, indeed, and uh, uh, the really tending the hospital for patients. As in Massachusetts, we were sent uh, to a special ward of the state hospital for the insane. By contrast, private inebriate asylums and hospitals, such as Thomas Crothers Walnut Lodge Hospital, courted paying patients only. Here you see the Walnut Lodge Hospital. Paying patients regardless of their sex. Now, those of you who have read The Road to Wellville um, may have an idea of the therapeutic milieu that often obtained in these facilities. Um, treatment at private asylums was aimed at the affluent or well-to-do inebriate. Here you see Charles Dana, neurologist, on the problem of the well-to-do inebriate. The private inebriate asylum, like the private hospitals of the same period, attempted to lure their clientele with luxury. Picture is, again, the resolution isn't that great, but essentially there's furniture, draperies, uh, oriental rugs, um, a, a very uh, pleasing situation for uh, the well-to-do inebriate. Um, the, these hospitals uh, uh, took took patients in, um, they might rest for a while, uh, and then they were um, examined with, quote, instruments of precision to find out how far alcohol and drugs have injured the brain and the system. And these instruments um, could help determine, quote, to what extent hereditary tendencies, diseases, injuries, bad living, bad surroundings, overwork and underwork have been active or predisposing causes in the present condition. Um, this assessment was necessary to plan the course of therapy, whether it meant hypnosis would be combined with uh, electric radiant light bath or counseling uh, used in conjunction with the electrical static breeze or the Chattanooga muscular vibrator. Um, here you see some of the uh, equipment that was being used there. It was really um, uh, quite extraordinary, capitalizing on the enthusiasm of electricity of the day. But regardless of the techniques employed, um, asylums such as Crothers could assure their prospective uh, clientele that they, they would find their accommodation status to date. Um, we, can, you know, we can be tempted to view Crothers as a crank, um, but really nothing could have been further from the truth. Um, as president of the AACI, he advanced really a progressive model of inebriety that appears, um, in retrospect, um, to have served as the basis for Ian Jelinek's mid-20th century disease typology of alcoholism. Um, though Jelinek criticized his predecessors for their vague understanding of the disease, um, Crothers really had a pretty sophisticated uh, knowledge of what was going on. 
And if Crothers the businessman might have enlisted the latest electro-stimulatory gadgetry for his paying patients, Crothers the regular physician was vehement about one point. There was no specific drug for the care uh, and cure of inebriety. And treatment for the disease was to build up the physical constitution and willpower uh, to resist all alcohol. Indeed, this was a key issue for the AACI and the AMA. Both societies condemned the use of specific or patent medicine cures um, for alcoholism and labeled their purveyors quacks. And this, of course, brings me to Leslie E. Keeley. Some of you may have heard of the Keeley cure. Um, I have to say at the outset, it's sort of ironic um, that the physician who probably did the most to promote the disease understanding of inebriety between, say, 1890 and uh, uh, 1920 was actually labeled a quack by the American Association of the Cure of Inebriates. But it's, it's true. Leslie E. Keeley, whom you see here, was born in Ireland in 1834, grew up in New York, served as a Union Army surgeon, uh, after the war, Keeley settled in Dwight, Illinois, uh, 1879, and he announced that he discovered cure uh, for alcoholism and drug addictions. Keeley opened the Keeley Institute in Dwight, and he began working on patients. Here you see the uh, Keeley Institute. His treatment received little attention until 1891, when he issued a challenge to the editor of the Chicago Tribune, John Medal, to actually send him four of the city's worst inebriate cases, four of the city's worst drunks, and he promised that he would cure them in um, four weeks. Well, um, apparently he did. John Medill uh, wrote an article in the Tribune and said that each one had returned a gentleman. Keeley's name fast became a household word. Um, alcoholics flocked to Dwight. Um, and it's, uh, the Keeley Institute sprouted up all over the country. Um, every state had one. Massachusetts had three. Um, you can see uh, here the Keeley patients coming home. Um, Keeley called his special cure the bichloride of gold cure, though certainly pharma, uh, pharmacists recognize no such substance. Um, uh, the U.S. government was so intrigued by Keeley's cure that they actually um, asked him to come to uh, Forts Leavenworth and Riley um, to work with veterans of the Civil War and uh, the Mexican War. Um, he treated at least 1,500 veterans. Uh, Keeley argued that inebriety was simply cell poisoning brought on by alcohol or drugs. And um, here he was advancing a theory that, while vague, um, did not really contradict anything the AACI um, put, put forward. Um, and more to the point, it only understood, could be easily understood by the public. Uh, to keep inebriates coming to his institutes, Keeley organized um, his reformed patients as missionaries and members of the Keeley League. League. In fact, there was a Keeley Day at um, uh, Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Keeley treated women in separate quarters, um, here you see the ladies' home of the Keeley Institute, and he even uh, received the endorsement of uh, Industrialists' uh, Institute and was ever grateful. Also, Keeley had a mail-order business. For $9, you could send away and receive a bottle of bichloride of gold um, that Keeley claimed would obliterate the, the habit in one week. Um, here you see a label from the, the, the bottle. Um, certainly, many followed in Keeley's wake. Here's the Geneva Gold Cure Institute, uh, the liquor habit, Dr. Haynes' Golden Cure. 
uh, liquor habit cured in three days, a positive factory cure guaranteed at the Gatlin Institute. Had about five Neal Institutes. They were, these were very popular. Uh, indeed, proprietary drink cure institutes proliferated um, and uh, appealed to uh, working middle class and upper classes alike. None achieved Keeley's influence, um, but eventually Keeley's method of attempting to snuff out the, the last candle of quackery within the profession. Um, other factors, such as relapsed patients and the drop in patient numbers that followed the passage of national prohibition, contributed to the um, again, it's tempting to see Keeley as just one more inebriety huckster, um, uh, but it's worth noting that really more than any other inebriety and promoted ways to keep reformed patients together to attaining their sobriety. Even treatment itself fostered a certain camaraderie. Um, here's another uh, waiting in line, chatting away with one another um, as they waited for the bichloride of gold shots. They closed its doors in um, Now. Uh, this is from, from all of these proprietary cures. Um, proprietary cures and hospitals for alcoholics and drug addicts um, were really quite popular at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Um, most of the inebriate institutions established by the AACI members uh, closed with the arrival of national prohibition in 1919. Um, but one very visible exception was the Charles B. Towns Hospital, which catered to New York. Towns was an extraordinarily casual who left Georgia to seek his fortune in New York City. Um, having met a stranger who claimed to have a cure for drug addiction, Towns experimented with a form on some willing addicts, supposedly willing addicts, and uh, enjoyed some success. In 1901, the same year he departed for New York, he actually opened the Charles B. Towns, see a picture of the hospital. Several other hospitals later adopted Towns' methods to treat addiction. And though initially Towns focused on opiate addicts, um, he soon found that he could have success treating alcoholics. Town's treatment was unique, um, a sort of short-term course of detoxification in a comfortable setting. Um, there were no month-long confinements as there were with the state facilities. Few people paid much attention to Town's intuition and professor of clinical medicine at Cornell. Uh, he was on the staff at Bellevue, and a politically active member really gave it a patina of professional respectability. And Lambert also encouraged Towns uh, to uh, deviate uh, from the Keeley uh, modus operandi and actually reveal the nature uh, and the exact uh, composition of his detoxification medicine. This he actually did, Towns did. Um, he also published his treatment regimen in the pages of JAMA um, at a time when the hospital generally was becoming the centerpiece of American medical care, the first few decades of the 20th century, emphasized his modern state-of-the-art facility and adhered to a brief acute treatment model of care that was really more curiously concept uh, of alcoholism absurd. Instead, he believed that alcoholism was merely the poisoning of the body's cells by alcohol. Now, not, this was not unlike Keeley's understanding of the condition, but Keeley insisted that this meant alcoholism was a disease. Go figure. Um, the poisoning of the alcoholic's body created an unquenchable craving for liquor, according to Towns, uh, liquor in any form, and it was his task, Towns' task, he believed, where alcoholics usually took about four or five days. Opiate addicts' treatment took twice as long. Um, Towns reported his success rate at 75 to 90%. Um, but Lambert's assessment of the treatment was far less sanguine, uh, coming in a, at about 20. Now, um, Towns' legacy is not so much his quick detox treatment, but the fact that he and Lambert did much to bring the notion of physical addiction into the public domain. 
um, particularly among the movers and shakers. His hospital detoxed thousands of alcoholics safely, I might add, extraordinary individual, Bill Wilson. In 1934, Wilson worked uh, with William Silkworth, a staff member at the hospital. And though Towns himself never emphasized the spiritual or religious dimensions of her, Silkworth did help Wilson make sense of his hot flash and interpret it as experience, an important first step in the birth of alcohol. To conclude, I just want to leave you with three thoughts, and none of these is terribly profound. Um, but I hope that after hearing this, um, you'll realize that really, during this forgotten period, physicians played an important role in treating and reforming alcoholics. Um, from Benjamin Rush, spirituality, the second thought is this, spirituality has for the most part really been an important and in the medical approach. And religion has compromised, um, or compromised, has comprised an essential part of medical efforts to treat alcoholics. Indeed, one might argue, I think, um, that part of the failure, part of the failure, of the early attempt to medicalize alcoholism between 1870 and 1920 actually stemmed from the medical profession's inclusive, inclusive policy towards spirituality and religion, uh, matters that were regarded as uh, antithetical to the scientific approach by many. Third, and finally, something I always want to leave um, at least my students with when they take my social history, social history of alcohol and drug course, um, is that there is no stupid period of history. Um, E.M. Jelinek uh, might have condemned the medical profession's early efforts to conceptualize alcoholism and its treatment, uh, but his critique was both, I think, misplaced and somewhat hypocritical. Um, he borrowed, after all, I believe, from uh, Thomas Crothers and others of the AACI. So, Physicians' understanding of the alcoholic's condition from Benjamin Rush to AA has been relatively sophisticated and multidimensional, and um, really the physical, hereditary, social, emotional, economic, and spiritual aspects of the disease. Thanks. And I'll, if you have any questions or concerns, I'll be happy to uh, chat with you, uh, answer any questions. Oh, thanks.